have good news for you this morning. As you've read through this, or if you've heard the Word of God spoken again, among, again amongst us, I have good news for you. I have great news for you. This passage is right at the heart of the Gospel. Right at the heart of the good news. The good news of who Jesus is. What He's done in our lives. Who He has made us. A new creation. But like many things, as it often is, we have to go through the bad news or through the hard news to get to the good news. As we see in the Gospel, there is no resurrection without first crucifixion. There is no new life without first Christ dying that we might live. This morning, we begin by going through the bad news. The bad news is is that we were all dead in our sin. We were all dead in our sin. We were, as much as we tried to spin it or justify it or water it down, we were dead in our sin. We were dead. You see, that's something I think that we as people do. We try to minimize our sin. We try to downplay it. We try to describe it away or or to try to, to make it sound not quite as bad. It's because we hate to be wrong. We hate to admit when we're wrong. And even more than that, we hate to admit when we've wronged someone else or when we've done something wrong. We hate to admit that. We don't mind pointing out other people's problems. Sort of takes the focus off of us for a bit. You know, those people, they, them, the sin that they have, the sins that they commit. But when it comes to us, that's a bit more touchy. Now, some of us are okay to admit our sin, or at least our sort of pseudo-sin. You know, that, that sort of pious confession of, you know, I didn't read my Bible every day this week, or I've only prayed for 10 hours this week, you know, not 20 like I knew I was supposed to. You know, and you can see in that confession almost sort of this, this sort of pull for someone to say, oh, but you're still so good. You're still such a great person. You're still so faithful. But when it comes to being honest, confessing our pride, confessing that we still hold grudges against each other, confessing that we still tend to judge people, to look at people, to look at the way they dress or the way they talk and make judgments about them, to confess that we still are greedy, that we still just can't get enough and enough for ourselves. Now that's off limits. That we don't talk about. That's hard to talk about. I think part of, the thing, part of the reason why we minimize sin, the reason why we don't like to talk about it, is because we don't understand the breadth of sin. We don't understand how deep it runs in us. You see, sin is broad. It's in this whole culture around us. We live in a culture that is fueled by violence, by exploiting each other, by lust and by greed and by self-indulgence. This is the air we breathe. Like fish in a murky pond, this is the water we swim in. This is what people around us take as normal. And it can actually start to feel pretty good as people in a church, as Christians, because, you know, we aren't quite that bad. You know, we look at ourselves relative to the culture around us and we think, you know, I'm doing all right. I'm actually doing pretty good. But the problem is, is where our reference is. You know, it doesn't really matter how we compare to the culture around us. It's how we compare to God. God is our measure of holiness. God is the measure of holiness. But we swim like fish in this murky water. 
So sin is broad. It's in this culture all around us. But it also runs deep in us. Even if there wasn't this culture around us, we still know the struggles that we would have. The sins that we would wrestle with. In our passage this morning, Paul talks about the lust of the flesh or the desires of the carnal nature. This sinful nature in us. This sinful part of us that we just can't quite seem to get rid of. The part of us that's selfish. The part of us that's broken. And always seems to need more and more stuff to make us feel better. The part of us that is twisted. And always seems to need something from everybody else. So much so that we don't really have much to give anybody else. We don't have much to share. Because we always need something more. We're always needing from people. This twisted part of us. And then there's this part of us that's turned in on itself. This part of us, of the human nature, that's, that's tends toward or prone towards addictions. Whatever that addiction might be. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, work. These things that become idols that we put above God, that distract us from God, that tear us away from Him. We have these tendencies in us just as humans, as people. The sin is broad in terms of the whole society, but it also runs deep in each of us individually. And if that weren't enough, also the evil one is at work. Satan is at work in this world. In this passage, it's called the, the prince or the ruler of the air. It's referring to Satan, to the evil one who is at work in this world, at work in our lives, the one who whispers to us, you deserve just a little bit more. I know there's lots of people out there who need help, but you just, just a little bit more for you. The one who whispers to us, you know, you don't really have time for everybody else. You don't have time to help that person. You don't really have time to study God's word right now. Undermining our faith. Each of us individually, but also as a society. As a society that is, that is violent, self-serving, that starts to marginalize people. To marginalize the weak who can't stand up for themselves. Talking about acceptable levels of poverty. Acceptable levels of addiction. Acceptable levels of abuse and brokenness. As Christians... As Christians, there's no such thing as acceptable levels of poverty. There's no such thing as acceptable levels of violence or brokenness or prostitution or drug addiction. There's no such thing as acceptable levels. And yet it's Satan who sets these things up, who who organizes ideologies that make these things acceptable. Laws and structures that hold people down and that keep other people in their place. People who would do something about it to keep us just happy enough so that we don't care. Things are at work in this world. We were dead in our sin because of its breadth in our society, because of its depth in each one of us, and because of Satan's work in this world. We were dead in our sin. But then by grace, by God's grace, this amazing, indescribable inexplicable grace. When we were up to our necks in sin, when we were a write-off, when we were even enemies with God, by His grace, He saved us. Not because of something we've done, not because we finally figured it out and turned it around, no, because of who God is, because of His character as God. And part of God's character is mercy. It's grace. 
God forgives because He wants us into a relationship with Him. He wants to bring us closer to Him and He's the one who has to do it. He has to forgive us to bring us in because I think part of it is because we, under, we don't understand grace. We don't understand God's holiness. You know, sometimes people might think to themselves, why can't God just get over it? You know, I've made some mistakes in my life. Why can't God just move on? We don't understand holiness. What it means to be holy. What it means to be righteous. The closest I could think, and I've been racking my brain, the closest I could think of is if you had this bottle of pure water, crystal clear spring water, no impurities, nothing but hydrogen and oxygen, pure water. And then you try to hold a little bit of E. coli with it and say, you know, just a little bit of E. coli won't matter. Just a few drops. We can't even bring even a little bit of sin close to God. One, because he won't allow it, but two, because it's contrary to his nature, to who he is. I mean, even if we put a few drops in, would anybody drink this water? Just a few drops. It's not that much. If we taint it, something that is holy, it ceases to be holy. And God must always be holy because of who he is, but also because of his desire, part of his character, who he is. He is holy. It's hard for us to understand this. It's hard for us to put these pieces together. But God is holy. That's why He must forgive us for our sin. That's why He sent Christ, that He might die on the cross to take our sin, to take the punishment that we deserved so that we could be reconciled to God. And He's done all of this because He loves us. As much as God is merciful, He is also loving. It's an essential part of who God is. And by essential, I mean it's He is completely loving. He's not some days loving, some days not so much. He's not some days 90% loving and then other days only 50. He's always 100% loving. Everything, God's, everything God does is out of love. And it's this word, the love, that sometimes I think we wrestle with. In Hebrew, it's this love that is hesed. Hesed love. Which is this enduring love. This love that continues on and on and on, even though, regardless of what happens, regardless of what we do, it's this love that pursues the beloved, that pursues the loved one, even when things are broken, even when things have been said, even when it costs, even when it causes pain. This love, this Hesed love, this love of God pursues us, even to the point of sacrificing, that He sacrificed His own Son. That God the Son sacrificed Himself that we might be made right with God. This love that pursues. Now this is all surprising when you start holding this together with God's justice. Because God is also essentially just. He's a just God. And as we read in this passage, Paul refers to us as as objects of wrath, or literally in the Greek, it's children of wrath. People deserving of God's judgment because of the sin in our lives because of the things we've done against each other and against God, that we deserve God's wrath. And because God is just, He can't just overlook it. And just like God is always loving, God is always just. He's not just on some days and you know, maybe 50% just on others. He is always just. It's His character. It's who He is. And we start to wonder, how do we hold together love and justice? Love and wrath. 
And as I've been thinking about this more, as I've been realizing that because God is so loving, He is also, it helps and makes Him more just. Because God loves so much, it also makes Him angry. It makes Him angry when we do things that are against what He desires for us. When we go against His laws. When we hurt each other. To think about this, I think about my own life as a parent, my own life as a father. Now there's some, definitely some things that are they're not perfect uh, description here, but it's been helping me to think about my son, Corbin. I think about the man that I want him to be. I think about the man I want him to grow into. To be a good man. A man of integrity and honor and faith. And so I've taught him things. I've taught him to be respectful. I've taught him to be patient. Well, still teaching. <laughs> and when he doesn't do these things, sometimes it makes me angry because I have this dream of who I want him to be. I know who he should be or could be. And so when he doesn't follow the things that I've taught him, sometimes I get angry. It's because I love him. Because I know who I want him to be. The man that I desire him to be. But also, too, sometimes I get angry when Corbin does things that put him in jeopardy. If you see him in the parking lot, please watch out for him. Again and again, I've told him, don't run in the parking lot. And then we'll come out of the grocery store and he'll go jetting out of my hand. And then I get angry. From Corbin's point of view, all he sees is dad is angry. I was just running around. I was just having fun. He doesn't know that I've taught him this. I've told him again and again because I care about him, because I love him. Because I don't want him to get hurt. There are things that God has given us, laws that God has given us, that aren't just meant to, they aren't to just keep us from having fun, they're meant to protect us, to keep us from hurting ourselves, from doing things that put us in horrible places. Because God loves us. Sometimes we just see the anger of it, but it's because He loves us, fundamentally. And also, too, we see it, I see it when Corbin, when he's playing with Shalem. One of the things that I have the shortest fuse for is when someone's hurting my boys. And when I see Corbin do something that hurts Shalem, I get angry quick. God forgive me. Because he's hurting my son Shalem. And I think about that for us when we hurt each other. God still loves each of us, but when we hurt each other, he's right to be angry about that. He's right to be upset when we wound each other, when we say things that are sharp, when we do things that hurt each other, when we do things that hurt other people who aren't even a part of this church because God loves them too. As I've been thinking about this as a father, I begin to understand how God's justice and how His love fit together. How God's anger and love are actually part of the same thing. It's that God loves so much that He gets angry at our sin. The times when we refuse to do the things that He's taught us that will make us better people, more faithful people. When we refuse to do the things that would protect us, that would keep us from being hurt, from getting ourselves in horrible situations. Or when we do the things that hurt each other. I begin to understand how love and wrath fit together, how God's love and His anger fit together, how His love and justice. God has done this because of who He is. He has saved us by grace because of who He is. It's part of His nature to be forgiving and merciful. It's part of His nature to be loving and compassionate. It's part of His nature to be just. And He has saved us. By grace, God has saved us. 
He has rescued us. He has snatched us from the jaws of death. God is working in us, saving us. Saving us. You have all been saved. You are here because you are saved. Not one of us deserve to be here. None of us have earned our place here. We are here by God's grace. Nothing we've done gives us a spot in this church. Not even that really nice lady that you know. Not even her. Because if you ask her, she will be honest about her sin. Confessing. That even everyone, every one of us are here because we struggle with sin. Because we need God's grace in our lives. We need God to save us. And sometimes we start to think, well, you know, I'm not so bad. You know, we look at the world around us and we're pretty good. You know, I don't kill any, I haven't killed anyone. I don't steal. In fact, I actually donate some money here and there. Well, before we hurt ourselves patting, patting ourselves on the back, we may not kill, but do we bring new life to people? Do we take time out of our lives to give to someone else? Do we take time to speak with someone who is homeless on Baker Street? Do we take time to go grocery shopping for our neighbor who can't afford groceries? Do we give life to people? Maybe we haven't killed anybody. Hopefully you haven't killed anybody. But do we give life to people? Do we speak life into their lives? And we don't steal. But do we still take too much for ourselves? Do we take so much that it means there's less for others? Or we take so much that we become so so overwhelmed with what we have that we aren't able to even to spend time with other people or to be generous with them. And maybe we donate. Maybe we tithe regularly. Maybe we do all these things, but do we donate out of our wealth? In the sense, do we donate so where it's easy? Because we have so much that we don't even miss it. Or do we make some sacrifices to be generous with people? Be generous beyond what's comfortable. Surprisingly generous, radically generous with people. Are we like this? What will it take for us to be honest with ourselves? What would it take for us to be honest with ourselves? To realize that none of us deserve to be here. That we are here by God's grace. His unmerited, undeserved, indescribable grace. This free gift, completely free gift that God has given you, that He has made available to every one of us. Whether you have followed Jesus for decades or if you are here wondering who Jesus is, this is a gift for you. A free gift of God's grace. Not something that you can earn because you can't earn grace. If you could earn it, it would become exchange. This is still gift. A gift of grace that is by definition getting what you do not deserve. See, we love justice when it's for other people. We want people to get what they deserve, except when it comes to us. Then we want something better. Grace is by definition getting what you do not deserve. Praise God for this. Praise God for grace that we get more than we deserve in God because of grace. And yet when, it's, when we look at people in our church, when we want to exclude people, 
when we look at people and we, we think that they don't belong here, it's a sign of our immaturity. It's a sign of our immature faith when we would say, they obviously don't fit here. They don't say the right things or they don't dress the right way. They don't think the right things. They don't belong here. We forget ourselves. We forget the work that God has done to scrub us clean. The work that He has put into each one of us to make us holy, to bring us close to Him. And we forget that God has died for us. That Christ died that we might have life. And that every person who comes through the door, He has died for them too. Every person, even if they don't come through the door, people who live next door to us, He has died that they might have life too. These people matter to God, therefore they should matter to us. Every one of you here matter to God. So we should matter to each other. This is mature faith. Faith that loves people, that is compassionate and gracious. Quick to forgive, slow to anger. God has saved us by grace. When we were a complete write-off and lost, He saved us. He saved us. But He's done so much more than just save us. More than just saving us from death, He's also saved us to new life. God has given us life more alive. Life lived with the possibility of living out of our heart to be fully alive. The Greek word here is zoe, which means more than just existing, more than just getting by day to day, more than just eating food and sleeping and getting up and doing it again, but life more full, life filled with joy and with hope. See, Paul talks about this. He makes this distinction between death and life. He says, once you were dead, but now you are alive. God has made you alive in Christ. Many of us know what life was like before Christ. The life we tried to live. How we tried to make meaning out of things that weren't meaningful. How we tried to make life meaning out of things that were never meant to give us this sort of, this sort of meaning. Trying to make meaning out of our careers. I'm such and such. I'm a, I'm a carpenter. Or I'm an engineer. Or I'm a CEO. Trying to make this the most important thing for us. Trying to make meaning out of all the stuff that we have. Maybe if I just have some more things, maybe that will make life worth it. And the more empty we felt, the more selfish we became. And it was this downward spiral because the more empty we feel, the more selfish we become. And the more selfish we become, the more empty we feel. Because only God can fill us. These things, these things that we try to make meaningful, they won't do it. No matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we try to delude ourselves, they won't give us meaning. We need Christ. Jesus has given us new life. Life more full. Life filled with joy. Joy that's resistant. Resistant to the troubles that we face. Resistant to our family in hospital, our friends in surgery. Resistant to things happening. Resistant to our marriages that are struggling. Resistant to our children who are having a hard time. We still have this joy, these moments of joy when we praise God. We can still come and pray and smile, even if it's just for a moment. Or that we can raise our arms and worship for, for who God is and what He's done. This amazing joy. And this rich simplicity that comes. That we celebrate these simple things that happen in life. Eating a meal with good friends. Walking in God's creation. 
gathering on Sunday morning to pray and praise God. This rich simplicity and this crazy love. This love that looks crazy to people who don't get Christ. That we forgive people who hurt us. We forgive people who betray us. We keep welcoming in the people who don't seem to fit. Even when they say things or do things that hurt us, we keep bringing them in. We keep welcoming welcoming them with a hug. And that God is holding us together as a church. This new life means this, this life together as a church. This community that works at staying together. That regardless of how hard things get, regardless of what happens, we stay together because we are family. Because we have been raised to new life. We are new creations in Christ. This new life that we have in Jesus. This new life that begins now. It begins the moment we believe into Jesus. So often, I think Christians miss this. We think about eternal life that happens someday. Someday after I die. Eternal eternal life is by definition right now. This is our eternal life. This is the new life that we are living. And it will one day be better. But we begin living it now. Don't waste your time. Don't, Don't waste your life trying to wait for that someday. Begin living differently now. Following Christ now. Jesus says, or Paul says that he has raised us with Christ. That God has raised us and seated us at God's right hand. We are seated with Jesus. Now most of us haven't actually seen that or done that. I don't don't think any of us have. But Paul is speaking with such confidence that this is the reality of things that he can say it in the present tense. Because it is so sure to happen, we can talk about it now as if it already has. This is our destiny. This is our hope in Christ. This is where we are headed, raised with Jesus, sitting with Him. God has raised us to a new life, a life that is more full and more alive, and it begins the moment we believe. And He's done all of it for His glory, for God's glory. Not to make us great and powerful, but for God's glory, for the, grace, for the glory of His grace, so that God would be famous and people would believe into Him. He saved us, rescued us from death, and rescued us to life more full. But He hasn't just done it so that we could just sit here and and bask in it. As good as it is, He's also called us to a purpose. Paul says, in order that you might do good works, in order that you might do the good works that God is doing in this world, you might participate in His mission, God's mission and desire to save this world, to save and redeem this creation. He has called us to be involved in this. To be at work in this. You see, I think this is something that we struggle with. You know, we wonder, like, how does this, how does grace and good works fit together? You're just talking so much about grace and now you're bringing good works. But these good works are not something that we do to earn our way in. These are a response, our gratitude that God has already brought us in by grace. He has already saved us by grace. So these good works that Paul is calling us to are our response. They're our gratitude. It's our right response because we love God. See, sometimes I think we miss this. Sometimes I think Christians miss this. They think they try to rationalize faith because it can be hard to follow Christ. And so they make it mental. I believe these things about Jesus and then I go live my life in a different way. 
I believe this and I affirm that and I confirm this, but then I'm going to go live these other things that don't match up. See, Jesus, when he said, all who believe into me shall not perish but have everlasting life, the word believe here is a Hebrew idea of belief. That means professing and living. The two are the same. If you profess and then you live, you believe. If you profess and then you live differently, that's hypocrisy. The way we live must must match what we believe. It can't just be a head thing. It has to be a whole life thing. So some people rationalize it. They split life in two parts, my church belief and then my real life. But some people minimize it. And I know a lot what this is like. This used to be me. To do just the minimum, just the, the, the bare minimum that I need to to stay in. To live right on the edge. To do just enough to make sure that I went to heaven. Trying to live one foot in both worlds. Trying to minimize it. You know, I'll do just these things. You see, the difference is here, this doesn't get God's love. This does not yet understand God's grace. For when we understand grace, we will be moving toward the center. We'll be moving towards Christ. We won't want to hang on the edge. We want to draw closer to Jesus. That we would live this life because of our love for God. Not because it gets us in the door but because we love God and we are grateful for what He has done for us. That we live out this faith because we love God and we want to please Him. And then the hopeful thing is that if we do this long enough, year after year, decade after decade, pretty soon it becomes our nature. It becomes who we are. That we couldn't imagine doing anything differently. That when someone calls and says, I need help, we couldn't imagine but going and helping them. We couldn't imagine doing anything but waking up and spending time with God. It becomes part of who we are. You see, this work, when it comes out of us trying to make it work, it, just, it, just, it goes the wrong direction. When we start thinking, like, I'm going to work harder for God, that's a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place. Christ says, produce fruit, but he doesn't say, tack the fruit on the tree. He says, no, change the nature of the tree. If we want to, to do more of this work for God, if we feel God calling us and we want to do more for Him because we understand grace, we draw closer to Christ. I know it doesn't seem quite logical, it doesn't seem quite like it makes sense, but we draw closer to Jesus and then the life will flow out of that. When we try to make the life just flow out of us, we might be okay for a while, but eventually things will fall apart. If we want to be more faithful to Christ, we want to live our lives more faithfully, we, we draw close to Jesus. That's where it begins and then it flows out of who we are. Not something that we've tried to do. We hear this of, of living out your life or, or doing these good things for God, doing this good work. And we begin to wonder, what does this look like? You know, Pastor, we hear all this all the time. What are we talking about here? We're talking about selfless service. Serving people, not because we gain something by it, but because they do. To be helpful to people. To help people move. To help people with their garden. To help people with their truck or the stitch that they just can't seem to get right. To selfless, selflessly serve people, serve each other, serve people in our community. If not for their glory, for God's. But also to compassionately forgive 
to forgive people. Especially people who have really, really hurt us. The people who have really wounded us. The people who have really ticked us off. That we forgive them. That we pray for them. That we would be reconciled. That we would be compassionate. That we would serve each other. That we would forgive. And that we would seek forgiveness. And that we would be urgent about this mission. That we'd be urgent about telling people this good news of who Jesus is and what He's done. The ways that He has changed our lives. The way that He has changed this world. There is urgency to this mission. There is urgency to this gospel. This is how we serve. These are the good things that Paul is speaking about. These are the good things that we've been called to live out in our life. This morning we've heard a lot of things about grace and salvation. Grace and good works dead to sin, alive in Christ. But all of it comes down to this. God loves you. He's done all of this because He loves you. He loved you from the beginning of time. He loved you before time began. Desiring you to be a new creation. A new person because of love. God has made each of you new people because He loves you. This is who we are. Let us be known by our love. You are held together as a church. This community here and the community with Nelson and Junction, this church, this church across Canada, across the world, you are a part of this church because God loves you. Because God loves His church. You are held together by grace. You are a new creation and part of this church, part of this family because of grace. Because God loves you, because of His grace, you belong here. You belong in this family by grace. Amen.